0: We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church in Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. We are in the midst of a sermon series in which we're going through the story of the Bible. And we're looking at what is the unifying story of the Bible that connects all the stories together. And this morning we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, let me invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 6. In the Pew Bible, you can find Matthew chapter 6 on page 811. We're going to be looking at what is sometimes referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, That's not, I think, the best description of this. I think a better description of this is the disciples' prayer or the model prayer because this is not the prayer that the Lord actually himself prayed, but this is the prayer that he taught his disciples. When you pray, pray like this. And so we're going to be looking at this model prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Now, there's a lot of confusion about spirituality about prayer. Now, here in Park City and probably other places around the country and around the world, you could talk about meditation all day long. People will post pictures of themselves meditating on the mountainside or on their patio, and they're perfectly and totally fine to engage in that kind of activity. But Christian prayer, and I think Christian prayer is unique based upon what we're going to see in this particular passage. Christian prayer, prayer is sometimes confusing. And so people have asked me questions like this, like, do you really pray? And when you pray, what kind of difference does it make in your life? So people genuinely have questions about, does prayer make a difference in the world? We all watched with heavy hearts as news was reported about the shooting that took place in New Zealand this past week. One politician who was kind of taking a shot at the NRA, she went online and posted this as a tweet. She said, you know, at first I thought of saying... Imagine being told your house of faith isn't safe anymore. But I can no longer say, imagine. Why? Because what good are your thoughts and prayers when they don't even keep the pews safe? Now she misunderstands the purpose and the goal of prayer. See, the idea in her mind is that when you pray, God is obligated to respond and do certain things. God's people are there worshiping him. They're praying. Then God has a responsibility to protect them and to keep them safe. But you and I know that the people of God have never guaranteed physical safety in this world. And that persecution is something that we can readily experience. So just because we pray does not guarantee that you and I will always be physically safe from harm. So do the people who claim to pray, do they look different from everybody else? Is there something we can see about their outward lives that would distinguish them from everybody else going about their business, living their day-to-day lives? Other times people have said this, shouldn't Christians focus more on things like what Jeremiah shared he's going to be doing, feeding the hungry, pursuing social justice, making sure that everyone experiences equality and peace and harmony on earth? there are all kinds of questions surrounding religion and spirituality and especially Christian prayer. But here's the thing. We're not new. These questions are not new. We didn't invent these questions in the last five years. These same questions were being asked by people in Jesus' day. In fact, Jesus' disciples, his closest friends, his followers, they ask him, Lord, teach us how to pray. And if you look in the corresponding passage in Luke chapter 11, what you see is that Jesus is praying and they notice something fundamentally different about the way Jesus engages in prayer. And they say, we want to pray like that. We want you to teach us to pray the way that you pray. And so the model prayer of the disciples prayer is recorded for us in Luke chapter 11, but it's also recorded for us here in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. So if you would, please stand as we read God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me invite you to be seated. Now, for most people, this prayer that we just read is a prayer that gets recited over and over and over. Sometimes some churches as a practice, a tradition, they they say this prayer every single week. And I think when we do that, then we miss the point of this particular passage. That Jesus is not just giving to us a prayer to repeat over and over and over. It's something infinitely more than that. Samuels Wimmer, he writes about this model prayer. He says, every possible desire of the praying heart is contained in this. It contains a whole world of spiritual requirements and combines in the very simplest language, every divine promise, every human sorrow and want, every Christian longing for the good of others. So there's something more going on than Jesus just giving you and me a prayer to repeat over and over. He's providing for us an outline. He's giving to us a structure, a pattern, a model for how we as his people should pray. This prayer points to the way that we should organize our prayer life, the petitions that we bring to a holy God. I don't think you're supposed to just simply repeat this over and over and over. Part of the context of Luke 11 leads me to this conclusion. And when the disciples go to Jesus, they don't say to him, Jesus, you know, what? we really need one of those home run Grand Slam prayers that you pray before we eat. Teach us one of those so that we can memorize it and we can say it whenever we need to. No, they go to him, and they say, we want to pray like you do. So teach us to pray. And so he teaches them, this is the way. When you pray, pray like this. Not pray this specifically. See, it's one thing to have a prayer book, to open it, and there are great resources, Puritan prayers, Valley of Vision, that I utilize in my own spiritual walk, personal spiritual walk with the Lord. And those are great resources in which fathers of the faith, mothers of the faith who have gone before us have compiled the prayers that express the longings, the desires of their heart that accurately reflect our own. Those are great resources. So I'm not saying those things are bad, but what I'm saying is that Jesus isn't saying open up a prayer book and just read a prayer. But he's teaching them how to pray in math. If you can remember back to being in school and uh, your instructor, your teacher was trying to communicate a new concept, they would give to you problems and they would give you examples and they would demonstrate the way you were to work through that problem. What they weren't saying is this is the only problem you'll ever have to work. And we just want you to work this same problem over and over and over again. No, what they're saying is this is the pattern. This is the structure you follow. These are the steps that you go through to solve equations like this. Jesus is doing the same thing. What's interesting to note also is that if you read through the entire New Testament, so all of the Gospels, the Acts, the Epistles, no one ever repeats or prays this prayer. None of Jesus' disciples, none of the apostles pray this prayer. So they learn from Jesus that this was a pattern, not a specific prayer to be made into a ritual. So it becomes a model for every prayer that you and I pray. It becomes, you could say, the the tracks that the engine of prayer will run on. Now, sometimes we focus on what does prayer produce or what are the end results or what do we get out of? out of it but that's not what prayer is primarily about. See we're pragmatic about prayer. We see prayer as the means to the end and that end could be an infinite number of things. Oftentimes it's a selfish end. It's about what I want or what I hope happens or about me being blessed. One person said it like this, men usually ply their prayers like sailors do their pumps when the ship leaks. That most of us pray the hardest, and the most fervently when we're in need. And we pray for that need to be addressed. It's kind of a sort of last-ditch effort for, for us. It's a kind of a spiritual life preserver that we cling to when we need it, but in times of relatively calm and smooth waters, we neglect. But as disciples of Jesus, as a covenant people of God, there are a couple of marks that should set us apart things that should be distinctive about who and how we live our lives, the activities we engage in. These two marks, I think, are the study of God's Word. That is a commitment we have in this church. That's why Scripture is saturated throughout our service from beginning to end. Is because we want to be a people of God's Word, studying it, knowing it, memorizing it, loving it, submitting to it, obeying it. But also... We should be a people engaged in prayer. Those, I think, are the two marks of authentic gospel spirituality. If you look at Acts chapter 6, verse 3, there's this kind of incident that occurs in the early church. There are some people that are being neglected, and so the complaints start getting lodged, and the apostles, they go, they, you know, look, we can't deal with every single thing. We only have a limited amount of time, limited amount of resources, so we've got to figure out how to deal with this issue, a specific issue relating to the care of widows. And so this is their solution. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility, the responsibility of caring for people who are hurting and in need. We'll turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So from the very beginning, the leadership of the early church, the apostles, they see there are all kinds of things that we need to be responding to. Legitimate needs of hurting people that God will provide through his church to meet. But we can't do it all because the fundamental things, the foundational, the primary things that we should be doing is we should be a people engaged in prayer and a people committed to the ministry of the word. Think about the life of Jesus himself, the priority that he places on prayer. He prayed for other people in Matthew chapter 19. Little children are brought to Jesus. He lays his hands and he prays and blesses them. What's interesting is that the disciples saw this as an interruption. They wanted to send the kids home, but Jesus said, no, let them come to me. Jesus prayed for others, but he also prayed with others in Luke chapter 9. He takes Peter, John and James with him. He goes up onto a mountain and praise. In the early church, they joined together in Acts chapter 1 constantly in prayer. This was a feature of the people of God living out the reality of the gospel in community. Jesus not only prayed for and with, but he prayed alone. Luke chapter 5 tells us that he would often withdraw to a lonely or secluded place so that he might pray. Psalm 46 says that we should be still and know that I am God. So this seems to be a practice in which Jesus would withdraw from the disciples, withdraw from the crowds that were following him in order to be still before God. He prayed in nature. He prayed in quiet. He prayed all manner of prayers in all types of situation. He taught about persisting in prayer. He talks about a parable in order to show the disciples that when you pray, you should be persistent in prayer and not give up. And it's not to show the people of God that we are these pestering nuisances to God who He finally relents and gives into our request, but it's just showing about the willingness to be persistent, the willingness to be patient, and to trust God to answer our prayers when it's His time. So if you look throughout the Gospels, you see there's perfect congruence between what Jesus says about prayer And about the prayer that Jesus practices in his life. They match up perfectly. There is no inconsistency between what he says and what he does. In this model prayer, Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now think of that phrase. Thy will be done on earth in heaven. Now fast forward to the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke chapter 22, when Jesus is wrestling in that garden, he prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus doesn't just say pray like this and do something different. Jesus himself prays in this manner. So what's the application for you and for me? First of all, if you're not praying, start praying. If you're not praying this week, start praying and some of you are going to say, but you don't know me. You, I, I can't pray. I've never done it before. I don't know how to. I get that. But the truth is, it's not that you don't know how to. It's not that you can't. The truth is, we don't want to. We don't want to pray. If that's how you describe your prayer life, then let me offer you a couple of suggestions. First, you need to, if you're in town, be at the library on Wednesday March the 27th at 6.30 p.m. If you're uncomfortable praying, this will be a great first step to learn how to pray. It will be awkward. It will be uncomfortable. But that's okay. Anytime you start some new thing, oftentimes you struggle at it. And you have to learn and grow into it. Prayer is one of those disciplines. When you wake up, if you watch the news or you read the paper, another thing that you can do to help you in your prayer life is if you see something, a headline or you hear a story and it moves you in your spirit, then pray for that. If it's about uh, senseless violence that's perpetrated on uh, a Muslim community in New Zealand, then you pray, God, this is not the way the world is supposed to be. In New Zealand, will you bring your kingdom in all of its fullness? Will your will be done? Will people who are desperately hurting find healing in the gospel of Jesus? So you can use the things that you're doing as prompts for you to pray every single day. See, prayer is not so much about what you gain. Now see, this is part of the reason why I think we struggle with prayer is we treat it fundamentally um, uh, wrongly than the way it should be. So we treat it like a call to a restaurant in which we're informing them of the things that we would like and in there to provide a specific kind of service in response. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is a relational activity. It's more like a phone call to a spouse or to a parent or to a child. I just want to hear your voice. I want to know how you're doing. I want to hear you say, I love you, and so that I can say, I love you in return. Prayer is a relational activity. That's why Jesus sets it in the context of this teaching. He says, When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Why? They love to stand and pray in the synagogues, on the street corners. Why? Because people hear the language they use, they see the words they're doing. And he said, They've gotten their reward. They just want to be recognized by other people, and they get that. And that's all they're going to receive. He says, But when you pray, you pray to your Father. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. But don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So if God knows what you need before you ask him, then you're not informing him of new information. So when you pray for something, God's not like, oh, wow, didn't know that. Thank you for informing me and letting me know of that critical information. He knows what you need. So prayer is not about you communicating to God what you need so that he can then respond accordingly. See, prayer is about God. And that's the weakness of Western Christianity is that we think that God is all about us. We think God is all about us fulfilling our potential, blessing us so that we can get the good things in this life, expanding our influence, bringing us success so that we can become better people. That's not the gospel. See, we want more of us and just enough of Jesus so that our dreams and our kingdoms get realized and built. One writer says the current fad of popular spirituality is that I have to go deeper into myself in order to find fulfillment. That my moral, my spiritual ideals are only authentic if I discover them within me. That I am the source of their authority, their validity, and that a God who is simply a projection of my own ideals and values can become a worthy God for me. But when self is absolutely its own master, he says, we end up in despair. And when we closely examine, we see that this absolute absolute ruler is a king without a country, Ruling over nothing and liable to revolution at every moment. So we are, we're deceived and we're led into this self-centeredness, even in a church where we practice a mode of prayer that's self-centered, where it's all about me. Think about the last time that you did pray. How many times did you say I, me, my? None of those words appear in this model prayer. Jesus doesn't say when you pray, pray my father. I have these needs. No, he puts it in the context of community. He says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father. Why? Because you and I need to shift from being consumed with ourselves to being focused on the kingdom of God. You don't find a single personal pronoun in this prayer. It's our Father, our daily bread, our debts, our debtors. Why? Because true Christian biblical prayer encompasses the community of faith and never isolates one individual over and above the other. So there are several ways that you can move through this model prayer and through the years the people of God have done so. One of the ways is it's a prayer with two parts. The first three are concerned with the glory of God. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. All of those are related to the glory of God being revealed. The will of God being done. The second, deal with our need. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. So you can think of it as a prayer with two parts or you can think of it like this. It's a description of your relationship with God. Our Father. It means that God is a holy God but he's also a father that loves his children. Hallowed be thy name. It means that He's holy and set apart that he's God. And that we are not Thy kingdom come. He's a sovereign ruler and we have certain obligations of obedience and submission to him. Give us this day our daily bread. We have a God who provides for his people. Forgive us our trespasses or forgive us our debts. You may have learned it. We have a savior because we're sinful people. Lead us not into temptation. We have a guide. Because we're a pilgrim kind of people. And we're on this journey in which God is leading us ultimately home. So hopefully you've seen that Jesus, when he teaches his disciples to pray, he isn't just giving them a prayer to recite, but a model to follow. And this model is critical. He says, if you get your perspective right, that is that God is God and that you are not, then prayer will make sense. See, God is the king, the father, And we are the subjects and the children. When we acknowledge this, we say, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. When we acknowledge God as sovereign and supreme, then prayer makes sense. So another way you could look at it is this. That there's a purpose in this prayer. That God would be glorified. That his name would be set apart as holy. And that his kingdom would come. When Jesus comes... We looked at this a few weeks ago. He came preaching the gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. It comes in part, and we see glimpses of it, but it's not come in all of its fullness. That's why Jesus is teaching us to pray, pray thy kingdom come. So there's the purpose in it that God would be glorified, but there's also three things that deal specifically with us and with your life. God deals with the past, the present, and the future of his people. He says that we should pray that our trespasses would be forgiven. That deals with our transgressions in the past. He says we should pray that our daily bread would be provided. That's our needs in this particular moment. And that you should lead us not into temptation, That he would guide us as we go forward in the future. Everything in this prayer seeks to glorify God, lift up his name, exalt his holiness. That's the purpose of prayer. And if you think it's about anything else, then you've missed the point. So we say we're going to commit as a people to pray. That's the application. So then, if that's the application, then this is the second kind of component of that. Move beyond your laundry list of prayers in which you just write down, pray for this, pray for healing, you know. Heal my arm, heal my leg, to pray this kind of prayer. You know, there's a person are going through this situation, They're suffering. They're hurting. God, will you bring healing? Will you help them grow spiritually through this process? Will you come uh, bring them to the place where they come to recognize that you're with them in the midst of all these difficulties where they come to see that you love and care and provide for them? Move to these kingdom kind of prayers rather than just a laundry list of God, do this. God, respond this kind of way. God, bring the kingdom in this person's life. Bring your will to be done in them. Bring your will to be done in me. How can I even answer to this prayer that I've now prayed, God, work in and through your church? You might be like, you know what, this is really great information. You know, we know a lot more about prayer, but, you know, what you said earlier is really true. We just don't want to pray. We just really do not want to pray. It's true of me, and I'm pretty confident it's true of a lot of you. When Jesus describes the hypocrites who pray, and for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners so they can be seen by others, I can do that really well. I do it every single Sunday, week in and week out. There are some weeks where I'll talk about prayer or I'll prayers, and for the six days leading up to that Sabbath day, to that Lord's Day, I might have engaged in a few moments of prayer. This is not just for you. This is true of all of us. We don't want to pray because we feel weak. It feels ineffective and inefficient, and we like to get things done. We like answers and solutions, and we like things to be resolved. So what do you do if you just really don't want to pray? I would look inside your heart. Have you really been changed and transformed by the gospel? Do you really believe that God is your Father and that He knows what you need and He wants to give to you good gifts? See, all through the Bible, Jesus addresses God as Father. And in this particular prayer, He's most likely using the term Abba, which is an intimate term of endearment. It's warm, it's personal, it's a name that you would call somebody you are very, very close to because it expresses this kind of relationship that you don't share with just anyone else. There's an intensity to this word I have one of those names. I have multiple names depending on who it is that's calling me. But one I'll share with you. Some of you have heard me call this before. But one of the names that people in my life get to call me is Chubs. You do not get to call me Chubbs. But my sister gets to call me Chubbs. My niece and my nephew call me Uncle Chubbs. It's a name that's reserved because they have a special relationship with me. Jesus says when you pray, you've been taught to pray like this. Holy and righteous God. And He is holy and righteous. And we never need to lose that fact that when we pray, we're praying to an eternal, triune, holy, sovereign, mighty God. But Jesus says when you pray, you can call Him Father because He loves you. When we first moved to Park City, I participated in this Bible study. and or It was kind of this community gathering in which things got talked about. And on one particular encounter, and I've shared this before, Someone brought a book and, and they were reading from this particular passage. And the particular passage contained some uh, untruth in it. And so I just, as gently as I could, began to kind of push back and challenge on this particular issue. And their response to my pushback was this. Well, we're all God's children. And as kindly and as gently, as compassionately as I could, I said, that is not true. The Bible does not teach that we are all God's children. 1 John chapter 3 makes clear there's a distinction between the children of the light and the children of darkness. There is not one simple family of mankind under one universal fatherhood of God, but there are two families in this world. They're the children of God, and then Jesus says, You're a child of your father, and speaking to the religious leaders, the devil. So Jesus makes it abundantly clear that there are two families. That's why John, his gospel, says this. Only as many as received him have the right to be called the sons of God. So when Jesus says, our father, that's a special relationship that's reserved only for the covenant redeemed people of God. It's an affirmation of an intimate and wonderful relationship that you and I possess. The only time that he does not refer to God as father in the gospels is when Jesus is hanging on the cross. And there he quotes from Psalm 22, in which he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The eternal Son of God, who has known nothing but the delight of the Father, hangs on the cross and doesn't pray, Father, why have you forsaken me? But, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reason is this God forsakes the Son so that he can embrace you and me as family. He forsakes the eternal second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, so that he can turn to a sinful people like you and me and say, My beloved daughter, my beloved son. When you start to grasp the depth of what Jesus did, then you'll start to pray. When the gospel captivates your heart and mind that God saved you, a sinner, then you'll be motivated to pray. But if you lose sight of the beauty, the power, the wonder of the gospel, then you'll think, it's all up to me. I have to do it. But you were never intended to live as an orphan. God saved you as a son and daughter so that he could provide for you, so that he could protect you, so that he could lead and guide you, and he could ultimately get you home. Let's pray.